Why do you have? We would be honored if you would join us. Hey there, Star Wars fans. It's your trusty pilot, Kyle, maneuvering you through the vastness of Star Wars audio archives. And pray we don't hit an asteroid. Today, we're diving into everything from a soothing hum of a lightsaber to tales that might just make a Wookiee run for the trees. So get them headphones snug and prepare for a blend of epic tales and cosmic suspense. Ready to jet into some galaxy-sized fun? Then let's jump into the story right now. Theron had no idea what Nostaral was planning, but he knew he had to get on the Ascendant Spear quickly. Instead of heading back to the Golden Galley where he might hope to steal a boarding pass, he headed for the hangar where the ship had docked. The scene was one of chaos. Hundreds of crew members milled around the hangar, clearly agitated. Six guards stood with weapons drawn, lined up at the base of each of the half-dozen ramps leading into the ship, blocking the way. Theron slipped into the crowd, studying the guards. He quickly realized they weren't allowing anyone to leave the vessel. Anyone trying to board was subject to a lengthy interrogation and inspection of their ID before being allowed to pass. The delay was causing a steady increase in the crowd waiting impatiently to be allowed back on. Whatever Nostaral had done had caused security to clamp down hard. What's going on? Theron asked a tall woman beside him. Your guess is as good as mine, she answered, clearly annoyed and not entirely sober. I just want to get back to my bunk. There were angry murmurs in the crowd and a handful of people actually pushed through to verbally confront the guards at the base of the boarding ramps. Something that would never have happened a year ago. Imperial citizens were raised in a military culture that trained them to respect authority. But the traditional discipline of the Imperial troops had been frayed by their recent setbacks in the war. And with hundreds of tired and drunk crew members coming back from R&R, tempers were high. An idea struck Theron. It was crazy. Impulsive and risky. In other words, just his style. He worked his way through the crowd, heading out of the hangar and back into Reaver Station. He remembered passing by a small security post, a room where the soldiers responsible for inspecting the incoming vessels could pass the time while they waited for arrivals. With Sea Wing shut down to other traffic because of the Spear's presence, the guard post was unstaffed. Theron paused at the door, glancing around quickly, and made sure nobody in the crowd of people passing by was paying any attention to him. They were too wrapped up in their own thoughts and conversations, or focused on meeting up with friends to enjoy their brief time on the station away from whatever vessel they served on. He pulled the slicer spike from his pocket, concealing it in his palm as he clipped it into the access panel on the wall. He was careful to stand straight and tall, his shoulders back and his head held high as he quickly sliced through the locked door. Hunching over and other furtive behavior would draw far more attention from the people walking by than someone who clearly looked like he had every right to be there. The door slid open, and Theron stepped confidently into the small room beyond before closing it behind him. The guard post was crowded, four chairs packed in around a large control console, with vid screens displaying the various hangars across the station. Empty, pending arrival, security check-in-progress, cleared to board. Every hangar in C-Wing was set to the same status, inactive. Because hangar security needed to know the number and size of incoming vessels so they could properly handle inspections, 
the guard post had access to Reaver Station's external scanners and the early warning beacons. The beacons were the first line of defense, strategically placed to detect incoming vessels long before they actually reached Reaver Station. It didn't take long for Theron to slice into the system. The scanners currently showed a few dozen Imperial vessels in the sector, arriving, departing, or waiting for clearance from the central tower to land. He quickly verified that Tepith was gone. The status display of the hangar where they had docked now read empty. Satisfied, he made a small adjustment to one of the settings on his slicer spike, then began to feed a steady stream of false data into the system. Several dozen vessels ranging in size, from single pilot fighters all the way up to full capital ships, suddenly materialized on the scanners, popping into existence near the early warning beacons. The data mimicked the effect of a large, well-coordinated fleet dropping from hyperspace all at once on the farthest edges of the sector. A few seconds later, alarms began to ring out through Reaver Station, warning of the simulated Republic attack. The sizzle and hum of clashing blades echoed off the walls of the cavernous chamber as Karen's apprentices engaged Nostoral. Their attacks were basic variations of the Makashi style, a precise and economical lightsaber form designed for maximum results with minimal movement by stressing jabs and thrusts. Their skills were raw. Like Karen, much of their training had focused on developing the unique abilities required to help their master command the Ascendant Spear. They were still able to call on the fury of the dark side to move with astonishing strength and speed, but they hadn't mastered the subtle art of allowing the Force to guide their blades. They were wielding the weapon instead of allowing it to become an extension of themselves. Nevertheless, they were relentless in their attacks, and there were two of them. Nostoral was forced onto the defensive to ward off their attacks occasionally slipping in quick maneuvers drawn from the more aggressive Ataru form to keep them off balance. Darth Carrot merely observed the battle at first, keeping a safe distance from the deadly blade of her former master, while his focus and energies were drained by her apprentices. Realizing he would eventually wear down if he allowed the battle to become a duel of attrition, the Keldor countered with Gem So, the fifth of the seven recognized lightsaber forms, Concentrating his counterattacks exclusively on the physically smaller female Sith, he unleashed a series of savage blows, driving her into a stumbling retreat. For an instant, he was left completely exposed to her human companion, but the unexpected ferocity of Nostoral's sudden switch in tactics caught him unprepared. He hesitated a fraction of a second before thrusting forward, giving the Jedi enough time to leap aside, even as his Sith opponent tripped over her own backpedaling feet and fell to the floor. Nostoral lunged forward to deliver a coup de grace, but his momentum was suddenly reversed, and he found himself sailing backwards as Darth Carrot hit him with a powerful force push. He was able to roll into a back somersault as he hit the ground and sprang back to his feet, but his brief advantage was lost. The two apprentices closed on him again, cutting him off before he could even think about charging toward Carrot. As they approached, he sensed the Imperial reinforcements in the hall outside, scrambling to restore power to the sealed door so they could join the fray. Knowing he was running out of time, Nostoral switched tactics again. He thrust out with a powerful force wave, sweeping them both off their feet. 
But before he could finish off his prone opponents, Carrot unleashed a blast of cackling dark side energy in his direction. Though Staral leapt clear, the deadly blue lightning scorching the floor where he had been standing an instant before. He threw his lightsaber in Carrot's direction, sending it end over end on a direct line with his target. The Falene parried the attack with her own blade, though she was forced to retreat a step to absorb the impact. Nostaral was already in motion, charging past her apprentices before they could scramble to their feet. His lightsaber flew back into his outstretched palm as he fell on Carrot. He had trained her in Nemon, the sixth and most balanced form of lightsaber combat. Malgus might have taught her other styles, but faced with Nostaral's furious assault, she instinctively fell back into the one she had learned before all others. Nemon lent itself well to the Jedi ways, eschewing naked aggression for balance and economy of movement that relied on focus and precision. As a Sith Lord who drew her strength from channeling the raw emotional fury of the dark side, the style compromised Karad's abilities. The effect was minimal, but it was more than enough for Nostaral to exploit. He used a quick shove with the Force to send her off balance, and brought his lightsaber in high to strike at her shoulder. When she raised her own blade to block the blow, he dropped low and took her feet out from under her with a sweep of his leg. Carrot toppled over, but the Jedi was forced to turn his back on her to engage the female Sith as she leapt to Carrot's aid. They exchanged a quick series of blows. Plenty of time for Carrot to regain her feet. Instead of attempting to finish Nostaral off by attacking from his flank, however, she retreated from the melee, putting the preservation of her own life above the opportunity to finish off her opponent. The male apprentice joined in a second later, and Nostaral switched to the defensive Sarisu form. He could sense fatigue seeping into his muscles. The toll of the battle was wearing him down, fractionally slowing his blade and leaving him more vulnerable to the force attacks of his enemies. An instant later, the door whooshed open, and a dozen Imperial Guards spilled into the room. Carrot held up a hand to indicate they should hold their fire. The outcome is inevitable, Carrot called out to him as he fought off the twin attacks of her apprentices. I sense your exhaustion. Throw down your weapon, and I will let you beg for mercy. Nostaral hadn't expected to win the battle. From the moment he decided to board the Ascendant Spear, he'd known defeating Carrot was a near impossibility. But he wasn't about to surrender and grovel at her feet, if for no other reason than that if he did, she would be suspicious, and his true plan would never work. I didn't come here seeking victory. Carrot's head tilted to the side as she searched for the meaning behind his words. Failing to grasp it, she turned to the soldiers arrayed just inside the door. I want him alive, she told the captain. Nostaral used the last of his dwindling strength to call on the force for a final desperate leap that sent him hurtling over the apprentice's heads toward his former Padawan. The attack was doomed to failure. There were a dozen ways Carrot could have avoided or repelled the attack, but she didn't even have to react as the soldiers opened fire with a dozen blasters all set to stun. The bolts knocked the Jedi from the air and sent him slamming hard to the ground. His lightsaber fell from his paralyzed fingers. The blade extinguished as the hilt clattered to the floor. As he lay there face down, struggling to cling to consciousness, Carrot strode over and picked up his lightsaber, tucking it into her belt like a hunter claiming a trophy from a prized kill.
She rolled him over onto his back with her boot, then crouched down to peer into his masked face. You know you couldn't win this battle, so why did you really come here? Nosteral had no intention of answering her question, but even if he had, his voice would have been drowned out by the sounds of an alarm ringing through the ship. Carrot snapped her head in the direction of the guard captain, who was listening intently to a message coming over the receiver in his ear. Reva Station is under attack, he blurted out. A Republic fleet has been detected in the sector. ETA, 16 minutes. Activate our shields, Carrot answered, concerned but not panicked. Recall all crew to their posts. We leave dock in 12 minutes. Anyone not on board will be left behind and face a full court-martial. As the captain relayed her commands to the person on the other end of the transmission, Carrot turned back to look down at Nosteral. Was this your plan? Sacrifice yourself so the Republic could catch us in port and unprepared? Or is there more to your scheme? Nosteral stayed silent, the edges of his vision growing dim as the blackness closed in the blaring alarms growing fainter and more distant. Just before he finally lost consciousness, he heard Carrot say, This is another battle you cannot win. The Imperial Interrogators will make you tell me everything. Reaver Station was in chaos. The alarms echoing through the station were quickly matched by alarms from every ship docked in the hangars as the central tower spread word of the Republic fleet closing in. Men and women sprinted back to their vessels, scrambling to get to their battle stations before the enemy arrived. Theron didn't know how long it would take for his ruse to be discovered, but he knew he had to act fast. He ran from the guard post, joining the stampede of soldiers bearing down on the hangar where the Ascendant Spear was docked. As he burst into the bay, he was swept up in the crowd and carried toward the ramps. The guards keeping the crew from boarding the ship were gone, either recalled onto the spear or overwhelmed by the sudden crush of people scrambling to get to their posts. Theron continued to let the crowd carry him along, heading up the ramp and into the vessel. Once aboard, the crowd thinned quickly as people broke off in different directions, heading to their assigned stations. Theron did his best to look like he knew where he was going, though in truth, he had no idea. He'd only had time to plan out how he'd get himself on the ship. Now that he was aboard, he needed to figure out something new, and it was hard to concentrate due to the incessant clang of the spear's warning klaxon. It wasn't unheard of for new crew members to get lost when first assigned to a ship as large as the Ascendant Spear, and there were diagrams of the ship's basic layout posted at several places along the bulkheads. He stopped to check one, quickly memorizing the layout before choosing his destination. He needed somewhere with access to the ship's main systems, so he could slice in and plant the virus, but it had to be isolated enough for him to work in private. His eyes fell on the engine room near the rear of the ship, separated from the rest of the vessel by a heavily shielded bulkhead to guard against explosions and radioactive discharges. It was accessible only through a single maintenance hatch. Moving with a new sense of purpose, he worked his way through the ship toward the turbolift leading down to the vessel's lowest level. He encountered fewer and fewer people as he went, and by the time he reached the lift, he was alone. 
Before he could press the button to call it, the doors slid open to reveal a short, heavy-set woman in a major's uniform. Corporal? She snapped on seeing Theron waiting for the elevator. Where do you think you're going? Sorry, sir, Theron said, slurring his words and snapping off a sloppy salute. He squinted one eye closed as he swayed unsteadily on his feet. Gotta get to my post. This lift is reserved, she barked, her voice even louder than the incessant alarms. Authorized personnel only. Alarms swoke me up, Theron mumbled. Gotta get to engineering. You're drunk, she spat, her voice filled with disgust. Are you scheduled for duty? Oh, nine hundred, he replied. That's not for another six hours, she said with an exasperated shake of her head. Go back and sleep it off in your bunk. Sure thing, sir, Theron said, fumbling out another clumsy salute. He turned and staggered off in the opposite direction, down the corridor and around the corner. Once he was out of sight, he dropped the act and moved quickly down the passage, taking a series of twists and turns that eventually doubled him back to the turbolift. Peering around the corner, he made sure the Major was gone before making a dash for the lift. He waited impatiently for the doors to open, then slipped inside and punched the button for G-Deck, hoping he wouldn't run into anyone else. Luck was with him. He didn't see anybody as he made his way from the elevator to the engine room's access hatch. Unlike the automated doors controlled by access panels, this was an old Durasteel hinge model, opened by turning a heavy wheel in the center of the hatch. The wheel was stiff from lack of use, and despite his best efforts, Theron couldn't budge it. He realized the maintenance crew probably used a wrench to gain the necessary leverage, but all he had was his pistol. He looked around the empty corridor, trying to find something else he could use. Seeing nothing... He shrugged and pulled the blaster from the holster on his hip, jamming it into the spokes of the door's wheel. Grabbing the pistol's grip with one hand and the barrel with the other, he pulled for all he was worth. The veins on his neck bulged as his muscles strained. Just as he thought he was about to pass out from the effort, the wheel let loose with a groan and moved a quarter turn. Theron adjusted his grip on the pistol and pulled again. The wheel moved more easily this time. Another quarter turn. He regripped for a third time and pulled. The wheel completed its revolution, and the door popped open with a loud clang. Standing motionless, he waited to see if anyone would respond to the noise. But all he heard was the clanging alarm. When he removed the pistol from the spokes of the wheel, he noticed that the barrel had been bent. The weapon was useless. Out of habit, he slapped it into his leg holster, then stepped in through the hatch, pulling the heavy Durasteel door closed behind him. He turned the wheel on the inside a quarter turn, enough to keep the hatch from popping open, but not so far he'd have to struggle to open it when he was ready to get out. He was standing on a narrow metal walkway that ran the full 40-meter length of the engine room. To his left was a reinforced bulkhead. To his right, the spear's massive hyperdrive and the enormous ion engines that propelled the ship when it moved at sublight speeds. 
The walls and ceiling were covered with a maze of pipes, tubes, cords, and wires running among hundreds of seemingly random placed electrical boxes, fuse panels, and computer chip relays. In addition to the alarms he could still hear and feel through the vibrations in the walkway, there was a steady, low-pitched hum coming from the ion engines. The air in the engine room was 20 degrees warmer than the corridor he had just come in from, and it smelled of ozone and burning plastic. If the heat doesn't make me pass out, the fumes just might, Theron thought. There were no control panels down here in the bowels of the ship, but Theron knew he could slice the spear by tapping directly into the main system. All he had to do was figure out which of the hundreds of wires and relays connected the engine room to the primary command console on the bridge. Shouldn't take more than a few hours, right? To his relief, the clanging alarms finally stopped. The blessed silence was broken by two long blasts from a distant horn, and the ground shifted under his feet as the ascendant spear disengaged from Reaver Station. Guess you're not leaving anytime soon, he thought. Might as well get to work. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The Imperial Shuttle's 10-hour journey from Reaver Station back to Chagani Port gave Tefet plenty of time to think about her deal with Theron. She wasn't entirely sure what had happened, but the basic details were clear. Theron and the weird-looking Jedi were trying something crazy and foolish. And if she didn't deliver her message to Grandmaster Satil Shan, a lot of people were going to die. She tried to tell herself she didn't really care what happened to a bunch of people she'd never met. But during the long flight, her mind kept conjuring up images of orbital cities and ruins. The bodies of men, women, and children scattered among the wreckage. She'd seen plenty of pictures of death and destruction on the holovids, and never given them a second thought. But this was different. Those people were already dead. There was no point worrying about them. The ones on Duro were still alive. No profit for us in letting them die, she thought, reminding herself why she was really doing this. Theron had promised her a big, fat payday when this was all over. It wasn't like she was taking any real risk. Agreeing to the job had actually gotten her off Reaver Station before the Jedi and Theron pulled off whatever crazy stunt they were planning. Only risk is if Theron doesn't make it, she thought. She realized the thought of him dying on Reaver Station actually bothered her more than thinking of all the nameless victims on Duro. Try as she might, she couldn't convince herself it was entirely because he wouldn't be able to pay her. She slept for a few hours, letting the shuttle's autopilot navigate through hyperspace. She dreamed of Nagani Joe, the crazy old Jedi who'd thrown himself in front of a blaster bolt meant for her sacrificing his life for her own. But she didn't dream of their time together or his death. In her dreams, it was like the old man had never left. Tefeth was on the Imperial shuttle, heading back to Chagani. Nagani Zhou was sitting in the seat beside her. 
His scraggly gray hair and bushy eyebrows were wild and disheveled. Looking at him, it wouldn't be hard to imagine he had never owned a comb in his life. He wore an old Jedi robe, wrinkled and stained, with a hood thrown back. There were several charred holes in his chest where the blasters had ripped through him, but his blue eyes were sharp and bright. I expected better from you, Tempest, he said. You think I gave up my life just so you could keep on working for the Black Sun? <laughs> Work for old Tian Brotherhood now. That's not the point. Big things ahead for us. At least we agree on that. Why did you save us? A beep from the autopilot alerting her that they were preparing to drop out of hyperspace startled her awake before the man in her dream could give her an answer. Stupid Jedi, Tefeth muttered as she switched the shuttle over to manual control. She dropped from hyperspace in the deceiver system, charted a course for the shuttle to bring her into Jugani port, then opened a hollow channel. Welcome back, sunshine, Gorbich said once the hollow was connected. Quick turnaround. I guess everything must have gone real smooth. Not smooth. Left Jedi and Theron at Riva Station. Gorvich chuckled. <laughs> Sounds like a good story. Lay it on me. Not overcome, channels. Meet us at Jedi's fancy shuttle. You move it? Nah. It's still in the hangar at Jagani Port. How long till you get there? Thirty minutes, she said flicking off the hollow so she wouldn't have to deal with Gorvich for one second longer than absolutely necessary. By the time she arrived at the hangar where the Prosperity was parked, Gorvich was already waiting for her. Okay, sunshine, we're here. So what's the deal? Why'd you ditch the others? She hesitated, choosing her words carefully. She wanted to tell Gorvich as little about what had happened as possible. If he knew Theron had offered her 10,000 credits... He'd want a cut. Didn't teach them. Told us to go. Need us to deliver a message. I don't follow, Gorbich said, scratching his head. You going back to pick them up later? Let's put out the plan. So how are they going to get off Reaver's station? Tepeth shrugged. Never told us. Just said take shuttle, go deliver a message. Gorbich shook his head. I knew they were up to something funny. This won't come back later and bite me when I'm not looking, will it? You'll be fine, the Twilik assured him. Gorvich crossed his arms and stared at Tuffet, his eyes staying above the neck for a change. I know you're keeping something from me, sunshine. I'll let it slide since you set this whole deal up. Still owe us our cuts, she reminded him. Don't worry, I got the credits stashed away somewhere safe. Gorvich laughed. A mean, spiteful sound. <laughs> Guess we aren't gonna get those bonus credits your friend promised, though. Might still make it off Reva Station, Tepeth said, a little more defensively than she intended. I'm just gonna assume he's not coming back, Gorbich said. Good thing we took this shuttle for collateral. Already got a couple of buyers lined up. Seeing Tepeth scowl, he added, Hey... I didn't think any of you was going to make it back. Why you sent us with them? Want to keep all the credits for yourself? Water under the bridge, sunshine, he said with an indifferent shrug. Now that you're back, I'm happy to share. Cancel, Shuttle, she told him, already tiring of the conversation. 
needed to deliver a message. Whoa, hold on a second. What are you talking about? You think I'm just gonna let you take off from my collateral? Corpich's eyes narrow. How do I know you and your friends aren't trying to pull a fast one? You see, they're still on Reva Station. But for all I know, you dropped them off at some luxury resort. Then they send you back here to get the prosperity, so you could all meet up later and get out of paying me the rest of the credits I was promised. Idiot. Tevin said with a shake of her head, turning away from him and heading toward the shuttle. One more step, and I ventilate your pretty little skull, sunshine. She turned around slowly to see Gorbach had drawn his blaster and was pointing it right at her. Saved your life on Nasada, she hissed. That's why I didn't shoot you in the back, he admitted. But I don't like being played, so stop holding out and tell me what's really going on. Tefit bit her lip, trying to find a way to talk herself out of this without having to cut Gorbach in on her side deal. In the end, she couldn't do it. Theron offered 10,000 credits to deliver a message to Coruscant. Could you take fancy shuttle to get there in time? 10,000 credits, huh? Gorbich lowered his blaster, though he didn't put it away. Cut you in for three, Tepid said. Hold on a second, sunshine, he said, holding up his free hand. You really believe you're going to get 10,000 credits just to deliver a message to Coruscant? You're dreaming. Feels good, she insisted, not wanting to get into the details. You don't think Coruscant Customs has access to the Prosperity's records? They'll toss you in jail for theft the second you touch down. Tefet hadn't considered that. Hopefully she'd be able to convince the authorities that she really did have an urgent message for Grandmaster Satil Shan. <laughs> Didn't think of that, did you? Gorbich gloated, recognizing the reason for her silence. See, that's why you need me around, watching out for you. Worth the risk, Tefeth argued. Ten thousand credits, too good to pass up. If he pays you, he already owes us another twenty on credit. Remember how he renegotiated the original deal? He says ten now, but when it comes time to pay, who knows how much he'll actually be willing to fork over. Maybe zero. Won't be zero, Tefeth grumbled. Even if he comes through with the ten he promised, and the twenty he already owes us... I got a better deal for you, Gorbich said. Forget about the message. We sell the prosperity and split the profit. We both come out way ahead in that game. Tefeth wasn't surprised by Gorbich's plan. He was a despicable man with no honor. But he knew how to turn a profit. And everything he'd said about Theron was true. Theron had reneged on the original deal. And even if she delivered the message and he didn't double-cross her... There was a good chance whatever crazy plan he was trying to pull off wouldn't work. If he was killed or captured by the Sith, she could kiss her credits goodbye. Well, sunshine, what's it gonna be? How much we get for the shuttle? Fifty thousand, easy. Plus, I still got your cut of the thirty I stashed away. If she tried to help Theron, Orvich might just shoot her where she stood. Even if she tricked or overpowered him... Her days with the old Tian Brotherhood would be over. And there was a good chance she might not get paid anyway. Or she could abandon Theron, keep working with Gorvich, and continue climbing the ranks of the Brotherhood while making an easy 40,000 credits. Good money, sunshine, Gorvich prodded. 
enough to ease any guilt about betraying a friend. And how long do you betray us? Tephet thought. Tephet sprang into action, hoping to catch Gorbach off guard as he waited for her answer. He was standing three steps away from her, his gun still pointed casually at the ground. Her first step was free. On her second, his eyes went wide with the realization of what was happening. On the third, he was bringing the gun up. But he only got it halfway before she knocked it out of his hand with a spinning back kick. She followed it up with a jumping front kick, swinging her foot as hard as she could and catching him right between the legs. Gorbage collapsed on the ground, curled up in the fetal position, groaning softly. Tiffith scooped up his fallen pistol, pointed it at him, then decided not to pull the trigger. Instead, she tucked it into her belt and raced over to the shuttle. She punched in the access code, and the Prosperity's boarding ramp descended with a soft hiss from the pressurized cabin. She ran up it, turning to glance back at Gorbich. He was still on the floor, but he was crawling toward the ship. He met her eye with a hate-filled gaze. Something in that look made Tefeth realize he wasn't done yet. Reacting on pure instinct, she threw herself back and to the side, grabbing one of the boarding ramp struts to keep from falling off. At the same time, Gorbich's hand flickered, dropping to the sharpened blade he kept strapped to his thigh and hurling it in her direction with a single well-practiced motion almost too quick for the eye to follow. The blade buried itself deep in Tefet's shoulder, almost knocking her off the boarding ramp. Using the strut for leverage, she hauled herself into the ship and hit the button to close the boarding ramp behind her, acutely aware that if she hadn't tried to get out of the way, the blade now protruding from her shoulder would have buried itself deep in her back. Ignoring her injury, she rushed to the cockpit, fired up the engine, sent the signal to open the hangar doors, and took to the air. Back on the ground, Gorvich crawled over to the control panel and hauled himself up, slamming the button to close the hangar doors with his fist. Tepid saw the hangar doors stop and halfway open, then slowly start to close again. She gritted her teeth, yanked back hard on the control stick to send the ship hurtling forward, and braced for impact. The Prosperity's hull, like everything else about the vessel, was top of the line. The multiple layers of durasteel plating in the reinforced frame struck the hangar's doors and wrenched them off their hinges, sending them flying as the thrusters powered the ship on through and up into the sky. Climbing toward the upper atmosphere, Tefet felt a subtle shimmy on the shuttle's formerly velvet-smooth ride, but checking the ship's instrument panel showed no significant damage. A few minutes later, she was far enough away from the planet's gravitational field to engage the hyperspace drive and activate the advanced autopilot to take her to Coruscant. Only then did she tend to her wounded shoulder, digging out the med kit from beneath the pilot's seat. She inspected the blade, making sure she wouldn't bleed out if she pulled it free. Fortunately, it had struck muscle and bone rather than a major artery, and she was able to remove it without any real difficulty. <laughs> though doing so made her tilt her head back and scream. Blocking out the pain, she treated and dressed the wound with the efficiency of one all too familiar with administering back-alley medicine. She inspected her work one final time before finally taking a pair of colto-filled hypodermics and jabbing them into her thigh. The pain disappeared almost instantly, and she felt a pleasant warmth spreading through her. She shifted in her seat, and the chair responded by automatically adjusting itself to her new position, enveloping her in luxurious comfort. She turned her head to the side and saw Nagani Zhou once again sitting in the seat beside her. I'm proud of you, my girl, for sparing Gorvich 
and for making the right choice. Now, maybe stupid Jedi leave us alone, she murmured, her words tailing off into a soft snore. I have the latest casualty estimates for tomorrow's attack on Duro, the director said. Do you really think I want to see them? Chase asked. The Supreme Commander was slumped in the chair behind his desk, his hand clutching an empty glass. He leaned forward and grabbed the long neck of the half-full bottle in front of him and refilled his drink for what Marcus guessed wasn't the first time this evening. The extra patrols you're sending help. Not much, but a little. We save a few hundred, Chase grunted bitterly, but we still sacrifice thousands. We could try to come up with an excuse to have an actual fleet orbiting the planet, the director suggested. Make up some honor to give one of Duro's citizens. Have the ships there as part of the celebration. Imagine you're the Imperial Minister of Logistics, Jace said, his words clear despite the alcohol he'd consumed. What would you think if you found a ceremonial fleet stationed at Duro when you launched your surprise attack? Would you believe it was just coincidence? director sighed. No, I think the cipher codes had been compromised. Chase raised his drink in a silent toast to his honesty, then downed it in a single gulp. Grab yourself a glass, he said, nodding over to the bar in the corner as he refilled his own. The director did just that before sitting in one of the chairs on the opposite side of the Supreme Commander's desk. Chase held the bottle up, and Marcus extended his glass. You think Theron's going to follow through on the mission? Chase asked as he poured. Marcus drained half his drink before answering. He's my best agent. You used to say he was one of the best, Chase noted. I upgraded him after he brought back the Black Cipher. What about Nosterol? He's a Jedi. Chase emptied his glass again. They're not always great at following orders that don't fit their understanding of the universe. I think he's smart enough to understand why we had to do this. And aborting the mission doesn't help Duro. So you think they'll go forward? I think so. They both care too much about the Republic to let this go off the rails. And after this is over, after we bring down the spear and finally put an end to this blasted war, you think Theron will ever forgive me? The director didn't answer. Instead, he just drained what was left of his drink. Do you support my decision? Chase wanted to know. I do, Marcus said. It's the right call. Don't know if I could have made it, though. And I don't know how either of us is supposed to live with it. Chase grabbed the bottle and refilled their glasses. Making a decision like this is brutal, the Supreme Commander agreed. But living with it is worse. Hunched over one of the many computer relay panels in the Ascendant Spears engine room, Theron wiped the sweat away from his brow before it ran down and stung his eyes. With the help of his slicer spike, he tapped into the panel and ran a diagnostic search to map out the various systems it was connected to. Theron had been hiding in the engine room ever since the Spear left Reaver Station. He had no way to get off the vessel until it docked again, short of stealing an escape pod, which would trigger an emergency alarm and get him blasted out of existence. 
Fortunately, the hours he'd been stuck on the narrow walkway in the sweltering, reeking engine room had actually proved beneficial. Realizing he wasn't going anywhere soon, Theron had spent his time trying to get a better understanding of the vessel's inner workings. Mapping each relay individually was a simple but time-consuming process, one he'd already repeated over a dozen times. But the grueling work was the key to piecing together a complete picture of the Spear's control systems. There was no single central network connecting everything. Each system was controlled independently, linked to several different relays that could allow functionality to be rerouted through multiple pathways if something went wrong. His exploration of the engine room was proving to be simultaneously exhausting, fascinating, and disheartening. The complexity of the ship was mind-boggling. It was the crowning achievement of Darth Mechas' experimental weapons program. SIS had long suspected that there was some kind of link between the vessel itself and whoever was in command. Mechas had specialized in combining biology and cybernetics. But the full scope of the symbiotic relationship went far beyond anything that they had theorized. Whenever Theron sliced into a computer terminal, his cybernetic implants allowed him to interface directly with the network. But there was still a wall of separation, a clear distinction between user and device. Mechas had found a way to tear down that wall. When Carid was in command of the spear, the ship became part of her. Or maybe she became part of the ship. They were inseparable. The connection gave her the ability to read and react almost instantly during a battle. The spear's sensors relaying information directly into her awareness, then responding immediately to her commands. It also gave her a heightened awareness of everything that was happening with the vessel's systems while she was linked to the ship. Theron would have to be extremely cautious with anything he did, taking extra care to use a light touch so Carrot wouldn't sense his presence. And he realized the original plan of planting a dormant virus probably wouldn't work. Even if Carrot didn't notice the intrusion, the spear had multiple layers of safeguards and redundancies that would quickly isolate and disable the virus. The relays cutting off the malware as they rerouted the damaged functions through a new path. The only hope of effectively sabotaging the vessel was for Theron to be actively slicing the system while the spear was in battle. Shifting and switching his electronic attacks to stay a step ahead of the vessel's security protocols. The dilemma of how he was supposed to actually get off the ship if he was actively sabotaging it in the middle of a battle was something he tried not to worry about for the moment. On the plus side, the Spear's unique design allowed Theron's own cybernetic implants to operate at peak efficiency while he was plugged into the ship, giving him a level of access unlike anything he'd experienced before. He'd already managed to patch into the ship's internal communications, allowing the implant in his ear to receive all their transmissions. Red Patrol, checking in. E-deck is clear. Proceeding to F-deck. Theron sighed and disconnected his slicer spike from the panel. He stood up straight, stretching to ease a crick in his back. Tapping into the comm systems had allowed him to follow the progress of the security patrols Carrot had dispatched when she realized the Republic fleet hadn't really existed. Theron had been tracking them closely as they systematically worked their way through each level of the vessel, wing by wing. He hated to interrupt his work, but it was time to move if he didn't want to be discovered. He went to the Durasteel maintenance hatch and slowly turned the wheel to open it. There was a sharp clink 
as the hatch popped free and a soft squeak from the hinges as it swung open. Theron poked his head out into the corridor, not expecting to see anyone, but also not willing to take any chances. His only weapon was the blaster he had tucked in the holster of his uniform, but he had no intention of firing it after bending the barrel prying open the engine room's security hatch. Fortunately, the hall was deserted, so he climbed out and closed the hatch behind him, trying not to make any noise. He worked his way down the hall, listening intently for the footsteps of anyone approaching. It wasn't likely he would run into anybody. G-Deck consisted primarily of the engine room, and way on the opposite end, the Spear's private command chamber. Apart from the security sweep, nobody had any reason to be on the level. Even Carrot wouldn't venture down unless the Spear was about to go into battle. Two turbo lifts, one near the engine room at the stern, the other near the command chamber at the bow, were the only ways to access the lowest level of the ship. Theron knew the security patrols worked from stern to bow, so he carefully made his way toward the stern, away from the lift he had taken when he first boarded the vessel. Because of the size and irregular shape of the ion and hypermatter drives, the two sides of G-Deck weren't connected by a single straight corridor. The hull twisted and turned. At each bend, Theron paused and peeked around the corner. Knowing if he was discovered, he would have a hard time explaining his presence. After several minutes of careful skulking, he finally reached the turbo lift near the front of the vessel. The hull continued another 30 meters before finally terminating in a large, sealed door. Theron knew the spear's command chamber lay beyond, but he resisted the urge to go investigate. The engine room was where he could do the most damage. No point in risking exposure by snooping around just to satisfy his curiosity. He hit the panel on the turbo lift, contemplating his next move as he waited for it to arrive. In his ear, he could hear the progress of the security team as they reported back each time they cleared another section of the deck above him. Theron considered heading up to the crew quarters on sea deck. He could look for an untended cabin where he could switch his grubby uniform for fresh clothes, leaving him less likely to draw attention if he needed to move around the ship. He might even get a chance to swap his blaster for one that worked. But whoever's uniform and weapon he borrowed was likely to notice if one or the other was missing, and that could reinforce suspicions about a stowaway on board. The last thing he needed to worry about was another round of security sweeps. When the turbo lift arrived, he realized he'd have more luck going to the laundry on E-Deck. He could also try to sneak something to eat from the nearby food prep areas in the galley kitchens, and his sweaty, shoddy appearance was less likely to draw attention among crew who spent their days working around steam-belching laundry machines, smoking ovens, and splattering pots and cauldrons. Hitting the button, he took several deep breaths to get into character mentally throwing together a number of potential excuses and explanations in case anyone caught him helping himself to a uniform or stealing some extra food. Stepping off the lift, he saw he didn't have to worry. E-Deck was a hub of frenetic activity. The men and women assigned to the military's essential but often forgotten service roles rushing back and forth with the energy and focus of a highly trained special ops team. Too absorbed in their own tasks to worry about a junior officer wandering through. None of them paid Theron any attention. In his earpiece, he heard another update from the security team. By Theron's estimate, they were halfway done with their sweep through F-Deck. Making his way into the laundry, Theron snagged a pair of pants and a top that looked as if they would fit, and tucked them under his arm. 
careful not to act suspicious, he made his way over to a hidden corner by one of the washing machines, ducked behind it, and stripped off his grimy clothes. Once he had the new uniform on, he was pleasantly surprised to see he had been promoted to captain. Given the harsh penalties for insubordination in the Empire, it was unlikely anyone below his rank would want to draw attention to themselves by confronting him. If I could find a Grand Moff's outfit, I might just be able to walk into the bridge and take command, Theron thought. Though it was only a joke, the thought gave Theron pause. If he could somehow get his hands on some explosives, say from the armory, he could plant them in the engine room and wreak significant damage. As quickly as the idea came to mind, however, he dismissed it. Security around the armory would be much tighter than what he faced here and even an officer requisitioning several kilograms of explosives was bound to raise questions he couldn't answer. Sticking with his original plan, he made his way into the kitchens, dumping his soiled uniform into a hamper half full of dirty laundry. As he'd hoped, the enlisted men and women did their best to avoid making eye contact with him as he marched past. His chest puffed out with what he hoped was the appropriate level of imperial arrogance and privilege. In the kitchen, he resisted the urge to go after the hot food being prepared for the crew's next meal, despite his grumbling stomach. Instead, he made his way into the storage lockers in the back and grabbed a pair of ration packs. The young man in Cook's garb gave him a curious look, but when Theron narrowed his eyes at the soldier, his gaze snapped down to the floor. Without saying anything, Theron marched out with his prize and back into the hall. Another update in his ear informed him the security team had completed the sweep of F-Deck and was moving on. Theron made his way back out into the hall and headed down the length of the ship toward the turbolift at the stern. As he reached it, he heard another update from the security team. Engine room is clear. Moving on. He called the turbolift, stepped inside, and thumbed the button for G-Deck to complete his circuitous route and return him to where he started. The corridor was empty as he stepped off the lift. The security patrol had already moved on to the other side of the ship. The wheel on the access hatch turned easier this time, loosened up by its recent use. Back inside the engine room, he stripped off the captain's uniform, carefully folding it and setting it in the metal walkway just inside the hatch, along with his bent pistol, his slicer spike, and one of the ration packs he'd stolen. He took a few minutes to consume the contents of the second ration pack, by the time he was done eating, he was already covered in sweat. He'd hoped the heat would be more bearable wearing only his underwear and boots. It wasn't, but at least his new uniform wouldn't end up covered in dirt and sweat stains. Retrieving his slicer spike, he returned to the arduous task of learning everything he possibly could about the Ascendant Spear. A jolt of excruciating pain jarred Nostaral back to consciousness. It felt as if he were being cooked alive from the inside. His eyes popped open wide. Adding to his suffering, someone had removed his protective goggles, and the oxygen-rich atmosphere of the ship felt like acid on his pupils. Squeezing his tortured eyes shut, he let loose a scream, the sound muffled by his breathing mask. He's awake, he heard Darth Carrot say and the burning agony suddenly stopped. Though still unable to open his eyes, the Keldor was able to take stock of his surroundings. He was lying on a hard platform or table set at a 45-degree angle, his wrists and ankles tightly shackled so that he was spread-eagled against the surface. His robe and most of his clothes had been stripped away, 
leaving him almost naked. In addition to Carrot, there were others in the room with him. He recognized the presence of the female Sith apprentice, though he couldn't sense Carrot's male follower anywhere close by. And there were two others. He couldn't feel the dark side emanating from them, so he assumed they were not Sith, but rather Imperial soldiers, guards, or specially trained interrogators. He heard footsteps approaching, then the sound of Darth Carrot's voice much closer than before. We know the attack on River Station was staged, she said, her voice filled with an icy calm. But I don't understand why. What was the purpose of setting off a false alarm? The Jedi didn't know what she was talking about, but he suspected Theron had something to do with it. Whatever his partner had been up to, he hoped it had worked. If Theron hadn't successfully planted the virus in the Spear's systems, Nostaral's plan was doomed to fail. Hit him again, Darth Carrot said, tired of waiting for him to answer her question. This time, his body felt not heat, but a strange kind of internalized pressure. His lungs and stomach expanded, as if rapidly filling up with air. His arteries and veins engorged with blood. His arms and legs swelled with fluid. The restraints on his wrists and ankles biting hard into his swelling flesh. His eyes bulged against his lids, and every organ in his body felt stretched and distended, ready to burst or tear apart. Nostaral screamed again through his mask. The pain was unlike anything he had ever felt before, the experience uniquely horrifying. And then, suddenly it was gone. Nostaral's body went limp, like a partially deflated balloon. A second later, he began to tremble every muscle quivering involuntarily. The spasm lasted for several seconds before he was finally able to calm his mind and regain control of his physical body. Darth Mekas was a true genius, Carrot said with obvious admiration. She understood that the normal methods of torture had little value against those who can draw upon the Force to sustain them. But even a Jedi Master is helpless against her remarkable machine. It attacks the mind and the spirit, she explained, but leaves the body intact. Any imaginable horror can be inflicted simply by stimulating the receptors of the brain. The pain will feel completely real, but the flesh is unharmed. Nostaral understood the grim implications of what she was saying. Conventional torture would eventually surpass the limits of physical endurance. Beyond a certain point, the subject would perish. But with Megas' infernal machine, no matter how much a victim suffered, the agony would never end. Dwelling on the endless horror is another part of the torture, the Jedi reminded himself. Stay calm. Focus on what you need to do. When he'd first regained consciousness, Nostaral had no sense of how long he had been out. Despite Carrot's torture, however... He felt his perception of time and space, an awareness born of being closely attuned to the universal power of the Force, returning. A little more than ten hours had passed since the confrontation in Carid's inner sanctum. The attack on Duro was still too far away. He needed to hold out for several more hours if his plan was going to work. You cannot break me, he said, his voice cracking from the strain he had already been put through. They both know I can, Carrot whispered from just beside him, 
running her long fingers seductively along the rough skin of the Keldor's cheek. But I don't have to. I know you weren't acting alone. A security sweep of the ship captured your friends. If you want to spare them this suffering, you will tell me what I want to know. Nostaral had to admire the ploy, but he knew she was bluffing. It was possible Theron was somewhere on the ship. He hoped it was true, but he trusted his partner was skilled enough to avoid any kind of security patrol. And Theron was working alone. Garrett had said, friends, plural, as if there were more than one. I know you're lying, because I came alone. Garrett pulled her hand away from his face in frustration. Again! This time it felt like a million long, thin needles were impaling every centimeter of his body. They punctured his flesh clean through, sliding through his skin, muscle, sinew, and bone before sliding out the other side. They pierced his internal organs, his eyes, even his skull, stabbing into his brain. He fought against it, trying to summon the Force to ease his suffering. He opened his mouth to recite the Jedi Code to focus his mind and energy. But instead of the soothing words, all that emerged was another endless scream. The needles vanished, disappearing instantly just like the heat and the pressure. And once again, there had been no real harm done to his body, though the memories of the pain lingered. The Republic attack on the river station wasn't real, Darth Carrot said, her voice finally betraying a hint of her impatience. So what was the point of a false alarm? Is a real invasion coming next? One we will dismiss because we think it's just another equipment malfunction? Yes. That's it. You figured it out. Or was it deployed to cause confusion? Carrot continued, ignoring his obviously false confession. A distraction, so your allies already on the river station could set some kind of trap? Something that will be waiting for us if we return to port? The dark side has made you paranoid. It blinds you to the truth. Reject the teachings of the Sith, and you will have clarity and understanding. Clarity comes through suffering. You will learn that lesson soon enough. He heard footsteps as she walked away from him, then heard her speaking to someone else, probably her pure-blooded Sith apprentice. Stay here with the interrogators. Watch the Jedi. Do not underestimate him, and beware of trickery through the Force. As you wish, Master. A female voice replied, we will speak again when I return, Carrot called out to him. After a few hours on the table has made you more cooperative. Nostaral wasn't aware of her leaving as the interrogators turned on the machine and his world became pain. In the hall beyond the interrogation room, Carrot paused long enough to savor her former master's screams before continuing on. Her security sweeps hadn't turned up any other stowaways, though she hadn't expected them to. Sneaking onto her ship was a mission doomed to failure, as evidenced by Nostaral's capture. She felt it was far more likely his presence was a feint, a suicidal sacrifice to draw her attention away from the real threat. She'd hoped the Keldor would break easily, but she hadn't really expected that either. Even Darth Megas's wondrous device would need time to wear down a Jedi Master. 
but eventually he would tell her everything she wanted to know. Who he was working with, how he had known to find her on Reaver Station, why they had staged the False Republic attack. Until then, she was going to keep the Ascendant Spear out on deep patrol, safely away from whatever plot the Republic had cobbled together to destroy her. But that wasn't the only precaution she was taking. She took the turbolift to A-Deck, where the highest-ranking officers had their private quarters. There she found the newest additions to her crew ready and waiting for her arrival. Lord Kaox was a red-skinned pureblood. Lord Ordiz was a dark-skinned human. They had come to Reaver Station to swear fealty to the newest member of the Dark Council, though Carrot had initially been reluctant to welcome them aboard her vessel, for fear they might one day be tempted to try to take it from her. However, Nostaral's attack had made her reconsider her position. Now that she was on the Dark Council, she had to expect there would be other attempts on her life, if not by the Jedi, then by rivals within the Empire. Realizing it might be wise to keep a pair of well-trained warriors by her side at all times, she'd sent a shuttle to the station to retrieve them. I trust your accommodations are to your liking. Exquisite, Lord Kaox replied, while Lord Ordiz only bowed his head to show he approved. Come with me, she told them. We must begin your training. Training, Darth Carrot? Lord Kaox asked. If you want to serve me, you must learn to serve my ship as well, she told them. I promise you'll find the experience rewarding. Wow, episode 9 sure didn't hold back, did it? Felt like a hurricane with an extra side of turbulence. The era of Star Wars The Old Republic is all about intensity. Picture this, a galaxy held hostage by a tug-of-war between light and dark wizards, wielding unimaginable powers. It's a hyperspace jump just to think about it, and yet, what an incredible tale it weaves. Don't worry, we still got some cosmic tales up our sleeves in upcoming episodes, but first, let's wrap this one up. It's time for our signature quote of the day, and this gem is brought to you by Maz Kanata. She said, the belonging you seek is not behind you, it is ahead of you. Let's break that down. Picture this, you're in a wild adventure in the Star Wars universe, searching for a sense of belonging, that place where you truly fit in. The belonging you are yearning for isn't something from your past, It's not behind you. No, no, no. It's actually up ahead of you in the great unknown of your future. So embrace the journey. It's not about dwelling on what's behind you, but embracing the thrilling ride that lies ahead. Get hyped, because there is an amazing connection waiting to be made. Look to the future instead of getting stuck in the past. Set your sights forward. Imagine the incredible possibilities and friendships that await you. Your belonging is out there, just waiting for you to grab it with both hands. Trust me, it's going to be epic. Explore and discover. Get curious and be open to new experiences. Don't be afraid to step out of your comfort zone, because that's where the magic happens. Take risks, meet new people, try new things. These are the stepping stones of your journey to finding where you truly belong. Create your own path. Remember, you have the power to shape your future and create the belonging you seek. It's not about fitting into someone else's mold. It's about embracing your own uniqueness and finding those who appreciate you and to celebrate you for who you are. Be bold, be authentic, and create your own tribe. The belonging you are searching for is not a thing of the past. It's right there, shining brightly on the horizon. Embrace the journey. Look to the future with excitement and fearlessly explore the unknown. Your tribe is waiting, and they can't wait to welcome you in with open arms. It's time to own your own destiny and find that place where you truly belong. Let's go out there and rock it together. And I think that's all I have for this episode. I hope you enjoy part nine of Annihilation, and I hope you will join me for part 10 in a few days. Until then, may the force be with you. 
Thank you for listening to Star Wars Audio Archives. Join us next time for more Star Wars adventures. If you would like to listen to other episodes of the show, you can follow us on your favorite podcast directory. If you enjoyed the show, we would greatly appreciate a five-star review. Once again, thank you for listening, and may the Force be with you. Sway was created by Keen Eye Shed and is a production of Pick Film Media. This show was produced by Quentin McDaniel and was distributed by Sway Cast Network. Star Wars The Old Republic Annihilation was read to you by Jason Odega. Sound designed by Theodore Thompson. I am your host, Kyle, and we will see you next time in a galaxy far, far away.